This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From Foreign Policy Magazine and the Climate Investment Funds, this is Heat of the Moment, and I'm John Sutter. We're focusing on issues of justice and fairness on this season of the podcast. What does it mean to make a just transition away from fossil fuels? And today we're going to really drill down on this issue of fairness. It's a big issue, and so it almost feels hard to figure out where to start with it. It's unfair for future generations to have to deal with the horrible consequences of a warming planet. It's unfair that the places that do the least to cause global warming are bearing the brunt of the consequences. And it's unfair that we've known all this science for decades and still haven't done nearly enough. In our first few episodes of the season, we heard reporting from South Africa about that country's struggles to shift from coal to clean energy sources. That is one part of the transition, getting away from fossil fuels. The other part is making sure that everyone benefits. That's going to be our focus today. How can we move away from carbon-based energy in a way that maximizes equity so that rich people aren't the only ones driving electric cars, or that the benefits of an emerging clean energy economy don't only go to global superpowers. Later on, we'll hear from Melissa Lott, the Director of Research at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. She'll tell us about how a just transition and getting to net zero carbon emissions is really about giving us more choices as we transition to greener ways of doing things. But first, we'll head to Bolivia, where a nascent lithium mining and electric car industry may help solve the problem of affordability and accessibility when it comes to electric cars. Our reporter, Amy Booth, went to Bolivia to see how this is playing out on the ground. I'm in Cochabamba in central Bolivia. This is a beautiful city where the avenues and squares are lined with immense palm trees and intense purple bougainvillea flowers spill over the walls of the houses. You can see why it's known as the city of eternal spring. But despite its beautiful weather, the city faces a pernicious problem. It's so polluted here that the municipal government has declared three Sundays a year as car-free days to clear the air. It's pretty clear why people living here might want to switch to cleaner forms of transport. But there's one problem. How are Bolivians supposed to switch away from gasoline when electric cars are so expensive? Even the cheaper Tesla models tend to cost at least $40,000. That's more than 10 times what the average Bolivian earns in a year. Then, a local businessman had an idea. Maybe the solution to Cochabamba's pollution problem didn't involve Teslas. What if there was a company that made electric cars right here in Bolivia? In America Latina, the traffic is pretty slow. For example, the average in Mexico City is 13 kilometers per hour. In Lima, it's 12 kilometers per hour. We don't need a car as fast as a Tesla. We need something that moves well in cities and is cheap at the same time. That's Jose Carlos Marquez, the founder and CEO of Quantum Motors, Bolivia's first car company. They came to market in 2019 and all their vehicles are electric. On a sunny weekday morning, Adriana, a Quantum employee who also owns one of the cars, drives me to the factory. 
On the way, she shows me the ropes. The engine sounds less like a traditional car and more like some kind of spaceship. It's a squat, petite little car with a logo that looks like a leaf. There's a driver's seat and room for one or two people in the back or a large load of shopping. It's a modest vehicle. There's no trunk and some models struggle with hills. But for people who live in the city, it's a practical option to get to work or the market. Depending on the model, they cost between $6,000 and $8,000 new. It's still a lot of money for most Bolivians, but it's a lot cheaper than a Tesla. The factory is in a big warehouse out in the western suburbs. Near the door, teams of engineers are wiring in bright yellow and black battery packs, while further back, others hammer parts into place and spray paint the doors. In a corner, sparks fly like fireworks as the mechanic cuts pieces with an angle grinder. After a quick look around, I sat down for a chat with Eunice Muñoz, an industrial engineer at Quantum's factory. Well, right now, what we are offering is a range of 50 kilometers with a maximum speed of 50 kilometers per hour. But we are making progress already. You could say that with the new 105 amp lithium batteries we have, we are managing a range of nearly 80 kilometers and a better speed. Munoz just mentioned something crucial, lithium. Bolivia is home to the world's largest lithium deposits. Together with northern Argentina and Chile, it forms South America's so-called lithium triangle, a region that contains around 50 million tons of lithium resources, according to the US Geological Survey. Just under half of it, around 21 million tons, is in Bolivia, the largest known lithium deposits in the world. That's more than four times as much as China's reserves, which are around 5.1 million tons. A car battery requires around eight kilos of lithium, depending on the model. The lithium is mostly around the Saladu Uni, the world's largest salt flat. Unlike metals such as tin and silver, it doesn't come from a mine, but rather is extracted from the brine under the surface. The solution is pumped into giant evaporation pools so it can dry out and become concentrated. Then, the lithium is extracted via chemical treatment and filtration. But while Chile and Argentina have become major producers and exporters of lithium, in Bolivia, bringing it to market has proved more complicated. The Saladu Uni is in a remote part of southwestern Bolivia, where infrastructure is less developed than it is over the border in Chile. Many of the region's roads aren't paved, and there aren't many high-tension power lines either. The government is currently in the process of selecting a foreign company to partner with state lithium company Yacimientos de Litio Bolivianos, or YLB for short, to kickstart large-scale extraction and work on increasing yields. Despite these challenges, Bolivia has started to commercialize small quantities of lithium, including the production of lithium batteries. In mid-2022, Quantum began using nationally produced lithium batteries in its cars. This is Jose Carlos Márquez of Quantum Motors. Since Bolivia is the country with the largest reserves, we like that we are pioneers and that at the same time we can think that we are not just going to be a raw material exporters, we're adding value to the point that we already have a finished product. For Bolivia, 
Quantum is a tech sovereignty success story, showing that the country isn't limited to exporting raw materials, but are the communities nearest to Bolivia's lithium deposits seeing the benefits of what many hope is an incipient lithium boom? As the country seeks to transform its fortunes based on this natural resource that will be so important for the world's energy transition, what's being done to make sure this process is equitable? I travelled to the edges of the salt flats to find out. I'm on the main street of Rio Grande, about 600 kilometres from Bolivia's administrative capital of La Paz. This is a community of around 2,000 people. Most of the streets are just beaten earth. The houses are low-slung brick buildings, some of them made of traditional adobe. The roofs are generally made of corrugated iron. Sticking out the top like little turrets are huge black water tanks. Water access, like in many parts of Bolivia, is a problem here. I remember back then there was nothing to eat, nothing. There were about 20 of us here in the village. 55-year-old Mateo Calcina has lived in Rio Grande all his life and remembers what life was like before the community developed its minerals industry. Back then, the houses were made of straw and adobe. That's how it was before. We just lived from the well. There was an underground well. There was no electricity either. A 10-minute walk from town, heavy machine operators are hard at work scraping up borax from the flat landscape. It isn't mined from veins in the rock, but layered in deposits on the ground. And as I approach the site where they're working, I walk over heaps of fluffy white earth that feel almost like sand dunes. These have been piled up by the workers, waiting to be loaded into cargo trucks. The sun is so intense that I put my hood up, even though the temperature is in the high 70s. It's an intensely colourful sight. Huge yellow diggers drive around filling waiting trucks with heaps of white borax against the deep sapphire sky. The colours are so bright that it almost feels like a child's sandpit, especially when the driver operating a dumper truck three times my height starts chasing me around for a laugh. Throughout the 80s and 90s, Rio Grande made a name for itself extracting first lime and then borax and ulexite, minerals with many industrial uses, from the deposits here, just outside the village. This is how Mateo and his son have long made a living. But now there's a new gig in town. About three miles away, YLB has built its vast flagship lithium plant, the Planta Yipi. Some people thought that would be a turning point in the town's fortunes. Donny Ali is a lawyer and businessman who's also from Rio Grande. The idea that his small community was about to transform into a bustling commercial hub inspired him to open the aptly named Lithium Hotel in 2016. But the reality hasn't lived up to his expectations. I thought that having the Lithium Hotel here, it might be the accommodation centre for investors, business people who would come here for the Lithium. A lot of the professional people who might come and work on the project. But that, that's not what happened. There was just one season where one or two companies stayed in the hotel and we had all the rooms full. So far, the main job Lithium has brought to Rio Grande has been driving trucks. But Ali says truckers were disappointed to discover that the pay was actually lower than in the borax industry. Those who work only have an annual contract that can be renewed. They don't have an indefinite contract for life until they retire. What's more, the truck driving work came with conditions attached. Unlike borax and ulexite, 
Lithium extraction is a water-intensive industry, and he says it was part of an agreement whereby YLB gave them work in exchange for being allowed to extract the community's water. Now, Ali and others worry that they don't know how much water is left. Si bien ellos han accedido a... Although they've given us the opportunity to work with the skips on the salt flats, they haven't fulfilled their other commitments, like for example keeping us informed about the water levels in San Jerónimo Wells. And we don't have precise information about how much water is being consumed each day and what reserves are left either. There are other concerns about lithium exploration in the area too. I spoke over the phone to Merardo Ramos López, cacique, that is, leader of Maiku Villamar, a remote indigenous Quechua community of 580 people. It's way out near the Chilean border, six hours' drive from the town of Uyuni. Recently, Merardo went out to the Pastos Grandes Lake and got a nasty shock. So, on that occasion, we visited the lake and the Pasto Grande salt flats, and we found that YLB is currently exploring there. The lake is on his community's land, he said, and the community should have been offered prior consultation before works began. But even though he's the cacique, he didn't know about it. When he spoke to YLB officials, they told him they already had the environmental permits. Really, I'm angry. How, how is it possible? They are working without taking account of an indigenous community. Dr. Diego von Vacano, a political science professor at Texas A&M University, who has worked as an advisor on lithium policy to Bolivian President Luis Arce, agrees that YLB needs to do more to consult and include local communities in the area where it's extracting lithium, as well as cutting down on water consumption. But going forward, there are reasons to believe it could improve. I think that new technologies will not necessarily use uh, water to the extent that uh, they have been using in Chile, for example, with very bad effects on the environment. So I think if Bolivia, using the right technology, using less or almost no water eventually, He's referring here to direct lithium extraction. That's a new method of extracting lithium. It's a developing technology that's still being scaled up. But if they can get it to work in Bolivia, it would not only use far less fresh water, it would also be faster because it doesn't rely on waiting for water to evaporate from the ponds. The government says it plans to build two direct lithium extraction facilities in addition to the current plant, although it's not yet clear when that might happen. But overall, Von Vacano pointed out to me that Bolivia's lithium project has been picking up the pace since the Arce government came to power. And I think it's in the last uh, year and a half, Bolivia has done much more than it did in the last in the previous 15 years. YLB's plant in the Salt Flats has been undergoing renovation work. The company said in a recent report last November that the facility would be fully operational in the first half of 2023. The company's president, Carlos Ramos, says the goal is to reach 40,000 tonnes of lithium carbonate a year by 2025, the year of Bolivia's bicentenary, although analysts feel this is optimistic. In the 2000s, Bolivia largely nationalised its oil and gas industry and ploughed the profits into social programmes that helped to reduce poverty. Now, with gas reserves dwindling, the government's dream is that lithium could do the same. On the streets of Rio Grande, the local primary school empties out. An ice cream van sells popsicles to children in tiny uniforms being shepherded home by their mothers. 
A couple of blocks away, a fruit seller's truck is driving around with a megaphone, hawking oranges, melons and papayas, fresh delicacies from the tropical lowlands. It's not a quantum electric vehicle. We're probably still years away before we'll see those cruising down these streets. Still, it's undeniable, the town has undergone a massive transformation from where things were a generation ago. Borax mining has brought in some wealth, and there's cautious optimism lithium will eventually boost the town's fortunes for good. A lady selling soft drinks tells me she moved to the community from the highland town of Biacha in search of work, and she feels like the move has paid off. For others, they are still waiting for the lithium boom to happen. President Arce estimates that 130,000 new jobs could be generated by the lithium industry, but right now that feels far off. Bolivia's lithium industry might be more slow burn than boom for now, but despite the challenges, there's reason to be hopeful. For heat of the moment, I'm Amy Booth. One of the overarching goals of a just transition is to make sure that resource-rich communities like Cocachamba share the benefits. How can communities around the world replicate their success? That's where Melissa Lott comes in. Lott is the Director of Research at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy, where she works on maximizing the benefits of making a transition to net zero carbon. In most of the world, well, in all of the world until really recently, when you look at the history of energy and energy development, we've been allowed to throw away greenhouse gas emissions, just put them in the air and not pay for it. Well, we are paying for it through climate change, and that goes back to what communities prioritize, what the trade-offs they're willing to accept are, because every single technology we talk about, every single policy has trade-offs, period. But also think about who benefits from them. So in the past, certain small groups have received the bulk of the financial benefits from energy development. How different should that look like in the future? Let's say if you are a mining community that actually is producing the lithium, the cobalt, the copper that we need for the wires that will be used in the energy transition. In the past, you were compensated in one way. Does that make sense moving forward? How much of that benefit should stay with the community? When it comes to that supply chain issues, and you mentioned cobalt and lithium and the rare earth elements that go into so much of like the clean energy infrastructure. It strikes me as being like incredibly extractive, right? And, and a little, not just a little bit, but like pretty colonial. There's a lot of like companies in North America and in Europe that go into South America, Sub-Saharan Africa and extract these high value minerals and then build the global infrastructure. I wonder if you see any like counter examples to that or what would be like the pushback to try to have this new energy infrastructure look different than, than it has in the past? I mean, our history around minerals and mining and supply chains is a super mixed bag with plenty of negative examples. When you're talking about production of selective minerals, let's talk about copper as an example. You think about a net zero transition, you're going to use a lot of electricity, you're going to need a lot of wires, you got to think about copper. Close to 60% of copper in the world comes from three countries, China, Chile, and Japan. So the idea is understanding that in an energy transition, you're building a ton of infrastructure. So you're just building different infrastructure than you would build if you developed on the same pathway that you developed in the past, which is a very greenhouse gas intensive one. And so when we think about where our copper in that example comes from, what countries will it come from in the future as we massively increase the amount of those things that we're producing to build the infrastructure that we need to get to net zero? 
So, you know, what are we willing to accept in terms of trade-offs? And we've learned a lot in the past on how to do mining and mineral development in a safer way, in a less impactful way. What protections are we going to put in place to make sure that, that happens in the future in a more consistent manner is the question. Shifting gears a little bit, I want to talk about technology. And like you mentioned earlier, there are abundant technologies on hand that could help with this phase of the shift towards net zero. I think there's a lot of like sort of public conversation around electric vehicles, in part because it's a personal thing, like it's something people can relate to and picture in their lives. How are we doing globally in terms of a shift towards electrification of like the transit sector? And what do you think could nudge it forward? So we're seeing in a lot of parts of the world progress towards adopting policies that say, you know what, cars that come on the road moving forward will be zero tailpipe emissions. And for personal vehicles, that probably means, in most cases, electric vehicles. But I think the answer about all technology transitions is that in no case do we see globally enough progress being made in any area, whether it's personal vehicles, planes, trains, ships, power plants, homes. Um, But we can see some examples of electric vehicles, the state of California actually passing rules that say we're just not going to have sales of new vehicles be non-zero tailpipe emissions. Now there's questions that come up with this. What would we need to do if we did want to hit net zero? We don't have the supply chains in place to actually supply all the things that we will need to build out all of the electric vehicles we'll need in a net zero world. And so the question is, how quickly can we get policies in place to set up demand for electric vehicles to actually build out the rest of those supply chains? You mentioned California. Like, how is the U.S. doing overall in terms of thinking about the transit sector? Because I think at this point in the U.S., transportation emissions are bigger than from electricity at this point, right? Yeah. So we've made a lot of progress, actually, when it comes to electricity, though we're still not where we want to be when it comes to reaching our overall emissions goals. We're still not there, but we have made a lot of progress and emissions have been coming down. Transportation, I think, is the next one that we're going to see a curve vent in. But actually, I'm focused on road transportation. So I'm thinking about cars, trucks, buses. We've made a good amount of progress there with a lot of states adopting, I would say, primarily one of two things. One is what California has done with actually having these zero emission vehicle requirements. The other one is actually investing heavily in the infrastructure needed to make it easier to have electric vehicles on the road. Because if you look at buying an electric vehicle, if you can actually qualify for the loan to buy it, or if you happen to be lucky enough to just have cash on hand to buy a brand new vehicle, which is not a lot of people in this country, to be clear, but you can buy it and then save a lot of money on maintenance and also the fuel cost of that vehicle. So what are the other practical considerations? Can I charge it? (laughs) Will it get me from point A to point B? I'm in the middle of a long electric vehicle road trip right now as we're speaking. Hmm. I will tell you the infrastructure is way better than it was seven, eight years ago. But it's A, not true everywhere in the country, but B, it will be true in a lot more places in the country in the future. As you see the policies coming out of state governments, but also Washington, D.C., about building out electric vehicle charging networks and the infrastructure we need to actually make having that zero emission vehicle practically possible. Can I ask you about the the road trip a little bit? I think that's really interesting. What's that been like? Like where... Where have you found hiccups or difficulties, or has it been like way smoother than you would have imagined? It is about a 5,000-mile round trip, if you look at the entire circle that we're doing. Uh, we made a conscious choice. Uh, my partner, thank goodness, is supportive of 
uh, me being an uber energy nerd and wanting to take our EV for a spin and see what it could do. So we're driving mostly through the southeast and down into Florida and then back up part of the east coast and then back towards Texas in this big circle, if that gives you a visual of it. And within that, I would say two things have really impressed me is the sheer number of chargers that are available to me. It hasn't come down to where I can charge, but more like, uh, I think I want a break before that charger, so I'm going to get a coffee here. Is there a charger nearby? That is mm. such a privileged luxury position to be in when it comes to that. <laughs> um, the tough thing has been when we've actually wanted to spend time in very isolated areas. I'll say um, it's interesting, the area around Pensacola, Florida. There's two chargers kind of on the east and west far sides, but if you're spending time in the middle, you want to go to the beach, like, oh, it's tough. There's a Tesla dealership, and you can buy an EV on the lot here, but you can't charge it easily unless you plan things out really well. But one thing I'll say is if we weren't in this region of the country, I think that headache might hit more often than it has on this particular road trip. And that will change in the next five years as we build out more infrastructure. I mean, I think that's pretty encouraging that that's been possible. I feel like that wouldn't have been um, some handful of years ago. And yeah, I, I lived in Utah for a while. And I do think like out in the West, there are these huge gaps between places that seem a little scary if you're in an electric vehicle. But that's encouraging to hear that it's changing. It is changing. And more and more people have access to these networks. But when you go outside of the United States and outside of a lot of um, high income, highly developed countries, of course, your experience is completely different. Where can I charge? Heck, where do I have reliable electricity? Uh, we have to overcome all of those challenges as we move forward. You mentioned also affordability, right? Like there are certain people who can afford that upfront investment and then save in other ways on fuel cost and maintenance. What needs to happen so that that's more equitable? Um, that it's, this is a technology that more people have access to. Yeah, so the, the good news is here is that it's really a policy question. It's infinitely solvable. This isn't some technology innovation that needs to occur. So the question is, how do you make sure that over time electric vehicles are accessible to a larger part of the population and that they can be used? Um, so there's a few different things that I would just point out at a high level. One is actually incentive structures, tax credits. Um, all the different tools and mechanisms for financing an electric vehicle that can help us to overcome things like credit scores. If I don't have a good enough credit score, I can't get the car loan that allows me to do that upfront cost at a very low interest rate even today. Um, so how do you overcome that? How do you make sure that we have a robust development of the used electric vehicle market? And then how do you make sure that when infrastructure is being built out, it provides access to charging infrastructures to communities of people who don't live in a three-bedroom, two-bath house with a garage who could upgrade the wiring in that garage and have a, you know, charger on hand whenever they need it. How do you think about building out workplace charging? How do you think about community charging opportunities? And how do you think about, you know, where people are going to need access to this infrastructure? And after you've built it, how do you think about maintaining it? And then what does the workforce for that look like? So there's a lot of different aspects of equity within the things I just outlined. Some of the questions about this transition to like a clean energy economy, like some of the pushback around it sometimes in the past to me has seemed like hedging, like, oh, like maybe we can slow this down and, and not have it happen as quickly. But one talking point that I hear come up a lot is about the footprint of wind or of solar and what renewable energy does or doesn't do to communities around where it's, it's out. And I wonder what you make of that. Like how big is this footprint really, you know, as we accelerate towards net zero, hopefully? Um, and are, do you think that there are valid concerns around the uptake of that industry? 
So every single one of these pathways we take have trade-offs. When it comes to communities that I've spent a lot of time in, I'll talk about where my family's from. A lot of them are from Texas. One of the trade-offs that we're most attuned to is water. So you could tell me that I can build out a nuclear power facility, let's say, and my question is going to be, how do I deal with the water trade-offs of that? That's going to be my primary concern because nuclear power uses more water per kilowatt hour of electricity produced than natural gas and coal. And my system is already strained. I already have these drought years where I'm having to figure out where to send my limited water resources. Hmm. In other parts of the country and other parts of the world, you're having to deal with land constraints. So the impacts of wind just make it not practically feasible to build out in some places because you don't have the amount of land you need. And the fact that you can still graze cattle around it, you can still have facilities and buildings around it, doesn't matter because you simply don't have the land if you're in Singapore, as an example. Every single one of these things are legitimate concerns. And the balance and the trade-offs and the choices that are made, I really think come down to what a community prioritizes and what a community is willing to accept as the trade-off that makes sense for them. That may not be the economically most efficient, but it's actually the practical pathway forward that allows a community to develop as it thinks is best, given its priorities. I mean, I think that's a refreshing way to look at it, because it does get talked about so often as if there's some global lever that can be pulled <laughs> that will like <laughs> flip the economy all of a sudden to, to something else. Um, and it does have to be a transition that, that communities around the world can live with, but, but want. I feel like that's been missing in lots of places from the conversation about uh, about the shift. So as someone who studies climate change and the health impacts of climate change, it is so abundantly clear to me that we need to transition and bring down emissions as quickly as possible if we want to protect human health and the environment. Like it just is. The evidence just keeps piling up every single year. You know, I'm looking at the data and the evidence and it's not that people push back against that, but they're saying, yeah, but I still really deeply care about this. And so you can tell me that this pathway is the best, but it's best by a definition, and my definition is different. And so facilitating those conversations, finding a path forward that balances all those priorities is extraordinarily important. And if we don't do that, we're simply not going to have the progress we want. In the longer term, getting all the way to net zero, some innovation, some advances in technologies are needed to keep it affordable to keep the price down of all this, which really matters when you think about equity and justice and just practical things of, are we going to be able to do this? You got to keep the price of energy down because it's the backbone of our economies. But what is very, very, very clear in the evidence is that not transitioning is more costly and has bigger impacts than transitioning. So you look at the trillions of dollars that we need to put into getting to net zero, and it's nothing compared to the impacts on our health, the environment, when we look at the broader costs of climate change. And what's also clear in the evidence is that we just need to move as quickly as possible. We're not ready to move as quickly as we need to yet. So my question is, are we going to make the choice? Are we as global community going to make the choice to actually bend the curve? Because that's going to determine if we get there or not. We're going to end our conversation with Columbia University climate researcher Melissa Lott right here. Because human health and the environment is actually going to be the focus of our next episode of the podcast. We've invited her back to talk about making sure that the most vulnerable among us are accounted for. When we look at the main sources of greenhouse gas pollution, they're often the same sources of other types of air pollution. So things that get into our bodies and make us sick. So if we decarbonize, we're moving to technologies that not only produce less greenhouse gases, but also makes us healthier. That's next week on Heat of the Moment. Heat of the Moment is a partnership between foreign policy and the climate investment funds. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, 
Rob Sachs, Scott Andrews, Hugh Seawright, Dan Efron, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Claudia Tatey, and Yure Wu. The Climate Investment Funds is a nonpartisan champion of climate action. Political views and opinions expressed in this series do not necessarily represent those of the Climate Investment Funds, foreign policy, or their partners. Until next week, I'm John Sutter. Thanks for listening. Thank you.